Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. In John chapter 21, so if you would join me there this morning, uh, grab your Bibles or turn on your Bibles or your devices to John chapter 21. We're going to, and I'm going to attempt to, preach through the entire chapter, and we're going to do some of it through narrative and some of it through looking straight at the text this morning. Um, But the title of the message is simply, uh, From Regret to Restoration. From regret to restoration. Um, For the past several weeks, like I said, we've immersed ourselves in the narrative of Jesus' last days. And we saw a few weeks back on Palm Sunday, we, we took a look at the Last Supper, the story of when Jesus had Passover feast with his, with his, um, uh, with his disciples. And he saw, um, uh, he saw Judas betray him. And he saw Peter, James, and John fall asleep on him in the garden and all those things. And he was betrayed. But he gave us the, um, the ordinance of communion there. But uh, we saw as well his resurrection on Easter Sunday where he conquered death in the grave and he made eternal life possible for all who believe in him. We've also looked at how Jesus appeared to his followers after his resurrection. And this is where things have gotten interesting, right? If it wasn't interesting enough that Jesus died a criminal's death when he never committed a crime, not even a sin. If it wasn't interesting enough that Jesus came out of the grave on his own strength and on his own accord and on his own merit, that God the Father raised him from the dead. If it wasn't enough that he rolled a stone away and that he, he, shook, he shook Roman assassins to their core to where they laid on the ground like dead men, if it wasn't enough for any of that, he shows up to his disciples and his disciples are just completely befuddled by what's going on. Not emboldened. That emboldening would come a little bit later, but befuddled by what's going on. And he appears to two sad followers who were walking back to their home in Emmaus after seeing Jesus crucified in Jerusalem. We saw how he appeared to Mary Magdalene on the morning of the resurrection at the empty tomb and through tear-filled eyes when she heard that voice that she had come to know and love for over three years call out her name, she realized this is not the gardener, this is Jesus. And then we saw how he appeared to the rest of the disciples as they were in hiding. And then last week we saw how he appeared to Thomas, who we know as Doubting Thomas, right? But Jesus helped him overcome that doubt. And it was the sight of Jesus, it's the presence of Jesus that helps overcome doubt, that destroys all doubt. It's not that we just find it within ourselves and within our, within our ability. And I think this is something that's ingrained in us because we're Americans, right? We have this idea that I'm American, I can do what I want. I'm American and I can pick myself up by my bootstraps. But when it comes to our doubt and to our skepticism and to our spiritual state, there is no ability for me to pick myself up by my bootstraps. Jesus Christ picked me up by his grace. And when I have doubts and when I have fears and when I'm feeling weak in my faith, it's not going to be me that just musters more faith. That's why Jesus said, if you have faith, just as tiny as a mustard seed, because anyone who has placed saving faith in Jesus Christ can have a mustard seed grain of faith. He said, if you will place faith in me, I will magnify that faith through our tests, through our doubt, through our storms. He takes those things and he uses them for his glory and he strengthens us through that. Thomas's doubt was severe. Thomas was done. Thomas was angry. Thomas was disappointed in Jesus because Jesus did not, did not turn out to be the Jesus he signed on for Jesus to be for Thomas. And church, that's sometimes the way we follow Jesus too. 
Man, Jesus sounds good. He's going to give me heaven. He's going to give me a marriage supper of the Lamb. He's going to give me a mansion. Man, this is great. Where do I sign up for this? And we look at Jesus for what we can get out of him, but we follow Jesus for who he is. Thomas was following Jesus because of what he thought Jesus would give him. And so we see this in each of the appearances that Jesus addressed his followers. They felt defeated. They felt fearful. They felt depressed. They felt dejected. They felt doubtful of what was to come because they had followed Jesus and Jesus had not been the Messiah they thought he would be. And we've been dealing with this tone for the last several weeks is that each of Jesus' followers in the Gospels, what did they do? They struggled with the reality of his resurrection. And I believe this, that every struggle we have in our faith is really the same thing. We struggle with the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So no, I've never doubted that Jesus resurrected from the dead. No, we may not doubt the fact, but we doubt the power. Right? The Bible says that there are those of us who are guilty of having a form of faith, but deny the power thereof. Meaning that we'll follow Jesus until it gets hard and then we don't think Jesus is enough. Or we'll follow Jesus as long as he's doing everything that we think he should and then something happens that shakes us to the core and we wonder where was Jesus all along. Jesus has always been there and he will always be there. You see, the key to overcoming our doubts, the key to overcoming our questions is to place our eyes on Jesus. Sometimes, and I said this a couple of weeks ago, I think it was last week, sometimes we're more loyal to our questions and our doubts than we are loyal to Jesus and to the truth of who he is. So last week, or last week we looked at Thomas. This week we're going to look at Jesus make one more appearance to his disciples. This will now be the third appearance that he makes to his disciples, the 11 remaining disciples and those who are close by and close to them. This time it's going to be a group of seven of these disciples. But more specifically, he's going to make an appearance to Peter. Simon Peter, who Jesus back in the day called him Petros. He says, you are the rock. All right. Now, when you hear the word the rock, you get the picture of Dwayne Johnson, right? Big, big strapping muscles and all that type of stuff. No, Peter may have fancied himself to look like Dwayne Johnson, uh, but he probably didn't. And, but Peter fancied himself to be like the rock as well. But Peter so many times found out <laughs> without Jesus, this rock turns to jello, right? So we pick up our text. It's about a week after Uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's about a week after Passover. So about seven days have passed and they've gone back to, they've gone back to where they live back in Galilee, which is where most of them, the seven of them were from. That's why we think the only seven of them were there. They had kind of gone back to Galilee, which is where they're from. Galilee is about 80 miles north of Jerusalem, which is where they were for the crucifixion and which is where they had been when Jesus had appeared to them the other two times. But now they've gone back to Galilee. There's a question of why did they do that? Post-resurrection, we don't know. We're going to look at that a little bit. But Peter, what we see of Peter, and you have to understand that before the resurrection, what was Peter doing, right? Peter was out there trying to be the rock. Peter was there trying to save Jesus from being arrested, right? He cut off an ear of one of the servants, right? And Jesus looks at him and says, man, this is not the way. This is not the way I've come to redeem the world. And he puts the ear literally back on the guy, okay? If that's not enough for me, that, I mean, it's like you literally put, put an ear back on a guy and you're still going to take him and you're going to arrest him and you're going to crucify him. But, but that's, that's, isn't that us? Isn't that human nature, right? Jesus, you've proven yourself over and over again, but we're still not sure about you. Then what does Peter do? After Jesus is arrested, what does he do? He follows him over. Maybe he's thinking about, you know, somehow 
seeing if he can get Jesus out of, out of trouble. And what does he do? He denies him, right? Peter is doubtful. And I don't know this time if he's necessarily doubtful of Jesus, but I think his doubt is in Peter. He's doubtful of whether Jesus will ever want him again because of what he had done. So we've looked at the fact that we will all have doubts. But the question is sometimes Satan or the enemy will use those doubts to try to keep us down. We may not have doubt in Christ at all, but we may live in doubt of ourselves, in doubt of whether Jesus is really willing to use us. Maybe I've gone farther than God's grace can reach. And I hear people sometimes say that, like, if you knew what I did or what I was, yeah, but that statement right there tells me you don't understand what grace really is. And you don't understand what God's mercy really is too. So we're going to look at this passage this morning and pull out some very important practical application points that we all need to see, uh, that we all need to see here together. So let's look at this. John chapter 21, beginning in verse number one. And I'm going to be stopping and starting as we go through this because I kind of want to, I kind of want to paraphrase a few things as we go through as well. So beginning in verse number one, it says, after this, and that's after Thomas, right? We just came out of the narrative of Thomas. After this, it says, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, which is another name for the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Tiberias was the Roman name for the Sea of Galilee, where the Jews would call it the Sea of Galilee. It says, he revealed himself in this way. And now it begins. Simon Peter, Thomas, who was called Didymus, or called the twin, Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee, Zebedee's sons, who are James and John, and two others of his disciples were together with them. I'm going fishing, Simon Peter said to them. Oh, that's a good day. So maybe it was a, maybe it was a Sunday afternoon because it wasn't Sabbath, right? Because that's when they worshiped then. It says, we're coming with you, they told him. And they went out and they got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Anybody ever been on a fishing trip like that? Where you went out on the boat, you caught nothing. Anybody ever fished all night long? Anybody ever done that? They would fish all night long in the fishing business back then so they would have the freshest fish to bring to market. That's why this was a normal thing for them to do, to go out all night and fish. This is also kind of in indicating that this wasn't just a, hey, hey boys, let's go out and catch some fish and see who pulls in the biggest bass. This was Peter and the guys who were all partners in the fishing industry returning to their daily lives, returning to their BC form of living, Right? Says, so we see seven of the disciples, they've gone back to Galilee. Peter takes everyone fishing. Peter has decided, like I said, to return to his BC life or something like that. And disappointment upon disappointment, as Peter is already disappointed in leaving Jerusalem, wondering if he's ever going to see Jesus again. More importantly, wondering if Jesus is ever going to want to see Peter again. He goes back to, and disappointment upon disappointment, his first venture back into his old life, he catches nothing. And this is his livelihood, right? But now let's read on and see what happens. When daybreak came, <clears throat> Jesus stood on the shore. So who's standing on the shore? Jesus. But the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Here we go again. Mistaken identity again, right? Friends, Jesus calls to them. You don't have any fish, do you? No, they answered. He has cast the net on the right side of the boat, he told them, and you'll find some. So they did, and they were unable to haul it in because of the large number of fish. Nets back then were not real strong like they are today. It's believed that the maximum weight of fish a net could carry in those days and a boat that they were out on, which was kind of like a little skiff, was about 300 pounds and that measured out to be about 153 fish. 
It says, so, so we see dawn begin to break. They hear a man on shore. They're about, to, they're about to haul it in and call it a day, go home and get some rest and, you know, go home and tell their wives and their families, you know, we're, we're eating, you know, we're eating ramen noodles tonight. And they see this dude over on the shore and, they, and he's heckling them. Like, you ain't got no fish, do you? And they're like, no, we don't, genius. Thanks, I appreciate it. And he's like, why don't you give it one more shot on the right side? For some reason, they decide to do what the guy says. And here's the thing, they don't recognize that it's Jesus. And, and, and we, we, could, we could spiritualize that if we want to, but maybe it's because where dawn is just hitting, maybe the sun is rising behind Jesus and it's putting out a silhouette, or, or they're too far away to understand who it is, and the voice even doesn't sound right because it's echoing off the waves or something like that. But here's what we have to understand. None of them, none of them at that point were expecting to see Jesus. They had gone back to a life of not expecting the miraculous. They had gone back to a life of not expecting the power of the resurrection. So they go ahead, they put the net on the right side of the boat, and bam, there's fish everywhere. There's fish jumping into the boat. It's like flying Asian carp or something like that. And to understand how significant this is, you have to read it through the lens of a fisherman back then. This was their livelihood. They had to have fresh fish every night in order to bring it to market in the morning or they didn't eat and their family didn't eat. And so now they'd fished all night with nothing and Jesus gives them a haul that will be the freshest that goes to market. It's going to bring top dollar when they go to market because they can say, literally, we just caught this fish. It's the freshest. thing. He was literally swimming seconds ago. This was their livelihood. Jesus shows them again. If you trust in me, I will take care of your needs. I will be your everything. So let's read on. Verse number 21. The disciple, the one that Jesus loved, said to Peter, It is the Lord. All of a sudden, as they're hauling in this fish, John, the one the disciple loved, looks over and he says, It's Jesus. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he tied his outer clothing around him, for he had taken it off. Some people try to make something out of it, and I don't know what it means. Some thought maybe that meant it was naked. I think it was just a jacket that he had had on that, that a lot of them wore to keep the sun off of them. And then since it was nighttime, he took it off, and he, so he'd have more freedom of movement. But it says, since they were not far from land, about 100 yards away, he plunged into the sea and he swims over. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. So that's a great job, Captain Peter. Just leave everybody else to do the hard work and you head over to see Jesus, right? Also, verse number seven, just have to note, John's ability to trash talk is epic, isn't it? I mean, back in John chapter 20, what did he say? Peter and, and the other disciple run to the tomb and the other disciple like whooped Peter on the way to the tomb. He ran way past Peter and beat him. Now we see over here in John 21, Jesus shows up and the one that the disciple loved, I'm Jesus' favorite, he says, I saw him first, right? And so Peter's like, you ain't beaten me to Jesus this time. And so Peter just jumps out and swims over, right? And leaves John to haul the fish. So I just, it just kills me, right? But anyway, so he comes over and he does that and they come up hauling 300 pounds of fish with them. Let's look at verse number nine. It says, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire there. Now that charcoal fire is important. We're gonna come to that in a minute. With fish that are lying on it and then bread. And then Jesus says, bring some of the fish that you've just caught, Jesus said. So Simon Peter climbed up in there and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them, even though there were so many the net was not torn. And Jesus says, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew that it was the Lord by now. Maybe because John told them or maybe because they were finally close enough to see it. I don't know. 
Jesus came, he took the bread and he gave it to them and he did the same thing with the fish and all of a sudden they're thinking, oh man, are we going to have 12 baskets to take home again? You know, because of the feeding of the 5,000. This is now the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So now we've got the scene that is set, right? All of this was to set the scene. Seven tired, stinky, hungry disciples who had gone back to just the grind of what they were doing before Jesus got there. Jesus shows up. He has breakfast already cooking for them on an open fire. Anyone who fishes will tell you there is no fish that tastes better than stuff you've just caught. And he even says to them, he says, why don't you bring some of those fish that you just caught, bring it over here. We'll throw that on so we have plenty for everybody. But Jesus is there for more than just breakfast with the boys. Jesus is there because he has work to do. Remember, even when we don't see it, even when we don't feel it, he's always working, right? And Jesus is working a plan of redemption in Peter's life. Look at verse 15. It says, when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. And so he says, feed my lambs. A second time then he asked Simon, son of John, do you, know, do you love me? And, and Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then again, he says the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And then it says, Peter was grieved. That original Greek word means he was like sad and, and kind of like perturbed at the same time. Like, why do you keep bringing up my shame? And he says, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. That's a nod to his omniscience, right? He says, you know that I love you. And then he says, feed my sheep, Jesus said. Truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you would, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. And he said this to indicate by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. And after saying this, he told them, follow me. Holy Spirit, I pray this morning you would speak through your word. I pray that I would hide behind the cross and say nothing that would hinder your word. Help us to hear your word. Help us to feast on your word and receive your word. In Jesus' name, the church said, amen. So like I said a little bit earlier, this is the fourth post-resurrection thing that we see here, right? He showed up to the men on the way home from Emmaus. He showed up to Mary Magdalene. Now we come into a third, this is going to be like the third time that he shows up to the disciples. So actually my math was off. It's actually the fifth time that he's going to appear that it's recorded, right? Again, math is not my strong suit. His appearance every single time erases the doubt of the power of the resurrection. It erases the doubt of who Jesus is. It erases the doubt of the fact that he is the Messiah, the one that, that, the one that had been promised. The third appearance in particular to everyone there but Thomas who wasn't there the first time. This is the third time now that Peter and James and John and all of those except for Thomas are going to see Jesus. The third time. They'd seen him two times in Jerusalem and now they're going to see him in Galilee. Every single time, his appearance erases doubts and gives courage to his followers. But last week we talked about this, but what about for us? That's nice for them. They got to see a post-resurrected Jesus three times in the flesh and in his glory, right? What about us? Why can't we just get a glimpse of him? Do you not think that if you could just get a glimpse of Jesus' face that you'd become a stronger Christian? Wouldn't it serve the purpose? If I could just get a glimpse of Jesus' face, that I could just see the nail-scarred hands like Thomas did, no wonder they turned the world upside down for Jesus. They got a leg up on us, but then remember what Jesus said. More blessed are those who believe 
without seeing me. Who take the word at face value. Who take my promises as though they are gospel truth. Because they are. 2,000 years removed from the time that Jesus walked on the planet. We don't get to see him like that. But yet, we're still supposed to feel more blessed. Because we believe without seeing. As we've seen in the past several weeks... Even seeing Jesus, even the sight of Jesus didn't do much to make the disciples super Christians. Yes, they became apostles and they moved on and they began to plant the early church and things that they were fueled by all of that. But they were fueled by the power of the Holy Spirit more than they were fueled by the sight of Jesus. Because each time they saw Jesus, what happened? It faded. The sight faded. Right? The sight faded and they didn't hold to the promise. And each time the sight faded in their mind's eye... They decided, well, we might as well get back to doing what we're supposed to do. Which was apparently fishing, right? This is now the third time that Peter and James and John get to see him. And they're still not truly grasping what's going on. Because whether they had gone back to Galilee just to wait to see Jesus again. Or what, whatever reason they'd gone back to Galilee. They went back home. They were doing what they were doing before Jesus came to them the first time. They definitely were not expecting or anticipating seeing Jesus. And many times that's the way we live our lives. We have accepted Christ as our Savior. We say we are his followers. We say that we are trusting him, but we live our lives as though he's not going to show up. We live with a faithlessness or we live with a doubt or we live with a way that we say, okay, I'm going to trust Jesus, but I'm also going to hedge my bets over here in some other stuff, in money or in power or in fame or in other things. When the Bible says that we walk by faith and not by sight right? There's a lesson in this for us, is that we know that it's an undesirable function of our faith that we will have periods of doubt in our lives. And no matter how many times Jesus shows himself and his power, we are still going to face those seasons. Peter saw Jesus three times. He also wandered away as well. And then Peter is used to start the early church and preach at Pentecost and they turned the world upside down for Jesus Christ. Even though they struggled, even though they had doubts, Jesus still used them. That's the thing we have to understand is that yes, we will have seasons of doubt. It's what we do in those seasons of doubt to come out of them, to keep our eyes fixed on him. And then also what we do as we come out of those seasons of doubt, we don't live in the shame of the fact that we doubted. Because to doubt is to be a Christian. To doubt is to be normal. But we sometimes live in that shame. What if you're like Peter? Peter was more than just a doubter. Peter was more than just Thomas. Thomas just got mad at Jesus. Peter denied him. Right? Isn't that worse? Thomas just doubted Jesus. Peter denied Jesus. Not once, but three times. Verses 15 through 19 show us, I believe, more than anything. It shows us the lordship of Jesus Christ. But it also shows us how redemption works in God's plan. It shows us how restoration happens for us. It shows us how we move on from the nagging shame that we can sometimes feel when we're working through our doubts and we're working back into a stronger faith. Because if there's anyone who wants to magnify those doubts, it's Satan. Right? Because if he can keep us doubting, he can keep us just kind of meandering around. But man, if we walk in the victory of being restored, there is no Christian that is more dangerous to hell than someone who is confident of their restoration in Jesus Christ. So let's consider three important truths this morning that we need to remember when coming back from the brink of doubt. First of all, 
And for somebody, this is something you need to know. This is why you're here today, is that Jesus always pursues us. Jesus is always pursuing us. Never forget this. And it's for our good that he does pursue us. Some of you may think, I wish Jesus would just leave me alone sometimes. Right? This is what happens when we continually feel that, that nagging pull from the Holy Spirit when we engage in sin or when we begin to like, you know, go against the grain of the Spirit's leading in our hearts. We're like, man, if I could just be left alone. We wonder why we can't still sin and enjoy it as much. This is because Jesus is always pursuing us. He doesn't just pursue us for salvation. He pursues us for discipleship as well. Matthew and Luke both talk about the shepherd that was willing to leave the 99 and go find that one lost sheep that wandered from the fold and got himself in trouble. That's because Jesus is always in the mode of caring for us by inviting us to him. Look what it says in Luke chapter 19 verse 10. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. The son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. This is what Jesus said. This was, his, this was his mission statement. I've come to seek. Understand, Jesus is always in the posture of seeking us out. He's always in the posture of inviting us to him. Look at what it says in Matthew 11. It says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened or are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me because I'm humble and I'm meek and I'm lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. The posture of Jesus in scripture is always a posture of pursuit and also a posture of initiating love. And it's important that Jesus loves us, but it is also significant that he initiates that love. He doesn't just sit back passively and like, oh, I love this creation that I've made. If they would only love me more, then we could really have something special. No, God says, I love this creation that I have made. And even though they don't even know to love me, I'm going to love them first. And I'm going to send my son to show my love and beckon them. And then I'm going to send my son to continually call me in. Come to me who are weary and burdened. And I'll give you rest. Jesus is always pursuing us. God is always initiating his love for us. John tells us that we love because he first loved us. Understand that as much as you may say you love Jesus right now, you're never going to love him more than he loved you. And you're never going to be able to say, I loved him first. I loved him first. Sometimes Stacy and I, we talk about, you know, you know, you always, it's always like the waiting game, you know, when you're dating and stuff, you wait to see who's going to like admit that they love the person first, you know. I was the first one to admit that, you know, I love Stacy and she says, I love you too. And I was like, well, that was quick. She's like, well, I've known for a while just waiting for you to say it, you know. And I'm like, well, I've known for a while too. I just didn't, you know, I just didn't want to embarrass myself. And, you know, we know that when we say to Jesus, I love you, he could really say, finally, Right? Because he always loves us. I love the song by Casting Crowns. It says, this is the story of a runaway with no way home and no way out. I threw the best of me away. I had my chance, but it's too late now. I'm too far gone. I'm too ashamed to think that you'd still know my name, but love refused to let my story in that way. And it says, you didn't wait for me to find my way to you. I couldn't cross the distance even if I wanted to. You came running after me when anybody else would have turned and left me at my worst. Love moved first. 
This is, the pursu- this is the posture of Jesus, is that he is always pursuing us. Even when the disciples left Jerusalem where they knew he had been and went 80 miles north and returned to their life, what did Jesus do? He shows up on the seashore and he has breakfast waiting for them. Even when Peter denied and turned his back, what did Jesus do? He showed up to Peter and he didn't say, all right, Peter, you got something to say. What did he say? He said, do you love me? Why? Because Peter knows that any love he has for the Savior is only returning the love that the Savior already has for him. Because Jesus is always pursuing. Jesus is always initiating that love. In our text, we see seven Galilean disciples returning home after spending a couple of weeks. And a lot has changed since they've been home. They were disciples. They went to Jerusalem with Jesus. And while they were in Jerusalem, they saw Jesus come in on a donkey. And they saw the whole city fall in love with him. And then they saw him tried and persecuted and crucified. And then they saw him come out of an empty tomb. And then they saw him show up from out of nowhere. A lot has changed since the moment that they left Galilee. And Peter was the captain of the boat, and James and John were partners in the fishing industry before Jesus came to them and said, if you follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. And they followed Jesus, but now they thought maybe the following is over. At any rate, whatever reason they're there, they're miles away from where they saw Jesus last. So you've got to think that they're not expecting really to see him again, especially Peter. But see, the physical distance didn't keep Jesus from coming to them. So we know that about Jesus, right? He's, he's God, right? He can just show up anywhere, right? He met them once again where they were at. Jesus came again to where they were at. Every time Jesus showed up, it wasn't because they had gone to where he was. It was because he went to where they were at. The reason we have salvation today offered to us is because Jesus came to where we were at. He came to a cross that we couldn't go on to save ourselves. He did it for us. The spiritual distance didn't keep Jesus from coming to them either. See, despite whatever doubt may still have remained, despite the fact that they left where Jesus was, despite the fact that Peter had denied him on the night of the crucifixion, Jesus came to them in love. He came to them with forgiveness on his mind and restoration on his mind. He came to them. He fed them. He gave them everything that they needed See, wherever you are in your relationship with Jesus, he is always pursuing you. Always. And this is beautiful because we are not always pursuing him, are we? Even when we take the day off from pursuing him, he's pursuing us. I hear so many people today say that they just feel distant from Christ. I hear it more so now post-COVID than I heard it before COVID, but it was happening before then too. Maybe you feel like Jesus hasn't done what you thought he should do in your life. You feel like Jesus is distant or he's turned his back or he's gone in one direction and you've gone in another. I can assure you, if you feel that way, the direction you've gone in is not the proper direction. But even in the wrong direction, Jesus is still pursuing us. Always. I want you to consider this fact. Maybe Jesus feels distant because we haven't allowed ourselves to look in the places where we know he would be or we've stopped anticipating his arrival. See, Jesus is always pursuing us, and he's always there. The question is, will we have the eyes to see him? Just like John. It took John a little bit to get his focus, right? Even when Jesus is standing there, it took John a little bit. John wants us to know that he got his focus first, right? And he made sure that we know that. But it took a while. 
See, Jesus never stops pursuing us. You never have to doubt that. The second thing that we have to understand is that Jesus doesn't dispose of those who doubt him. Jesus will not dispose of those who doubt him. And that's good because we talked about last week and we all shook our head like this when we said all of us will have doubts. And the good thing is, is that in our doubt, Jesus is not going to throw us away. Jesus is not going to say you had one job and that was to have faith and you didn't have faith for a minute, so you failed. Let's look at verses 15 through 19. We'll look at those in just a minute, but focus on those and read those over in your head if you need to, to kind of understand. But verses 15 through 19, the focus shifts from the seven disciples that he came to all the way down to just one guy, Peter. Everyone else just kind of fades off into the distance because Peter and, John, and, and Jesus have some unfinished business. You remember kind of like last Sunday when we looked at the scene when Jesus showed up and Thomas was there. All the other disciples were in the room too. But it was like it was just him and Thomas, right? This is how it goes with Peter. Why did Jesus, set, why did Jesus single out Thomas? Because Thomas had some unfinished business to do with Jesus. Why did Jesus single out Peter here? Because he had unfinished business with Jesus. Sometimes this is what happens when Jesus pursues us. He singles us out. Because he knows that's what we need. And here's what happens with Peter, right? Peter's sin is so well documented in several gospel accounts. And you know that it's going to be documented by John, right? Because he ain't letting Peter off the hook. Right? It's like they had some sort of rivalry going on. I don't know. Because he's not going to miss his chance to put Peter in his place for all of eternity, right? Over in chapter 18, on the night that Jesus is arrested, Peter is just a, few, uh, just a few hours before then was telling Jesus. Jesus says, look, every one of you are going to let me down. Every one of you are going to abandon me in some way, shape, or form. And Peter's like, not me, man, not the rock. And he probably gives him that eyebrow, you know, like, and he's like, not me, I won't. He says, if everybody else leaves you, I will not. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, before the night is over with, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter's like, man, you're crazy. But what happens? Jesus is arrested. And all of a sudden, he's taken to trial. And as Jesus is standing outside that courtroom, he's standing around a charcoal fire. And they are saying to him, Do you, hey, man, you look like that guy that travels with Jesus. And he's like, no, it's, that's not me. You got me mixed up with, with some other guy. Jesus does have this one like real handsome dude. And I know that you're mistaking me for him, but, but that's not me. And they say, no, I, I know you. I saw you. And then somebody else pops up and says, no, I saw you. He goes, I promise you it's not me. And then the third time they say, no, I know you. And to prove that he is not a religious fella, he, he weaves together a tapestry of curse words and says, I'm not bleepity bleeping a disciple of Jesus. And they finally all kind of back off. But then Peter hears something. He hears a rooster crow in the distance and he remembers the words of Jesus. And the Bible says he runs off in shame and in regret. His sin is only beat in, in, in depth by Judas Iscariot on that night, isn't it? Peter, who liked to fancy himself as the one Jesus could count on, becomes the one that came just shy of betraying him the worst. So Peter has to be thinking at this point, 
Jesus may be resurrected, and that's great for all of you guys. And he may have been in the room when Jesus had shown up and everything, but he probably thought that was just by, just by circumstance. But that if Jesus is going to do anything with the disciples, he's not going to do anything with Peter because he had denied. And the reason he thought that is because back in those days, the, the, the rabbi and disciple relationship was so significant and so important and so well respected in that community that if you denied your discipler, you were like looked at as lower than dirt. It was an unforgivable act to look at your rabbi and say, I doubt you, I don't want you. And it was a really bad thing to say. It was almost a sign of shame when somebody says, hey, aren't you Gamaliel's disciple? And look up and say, no, that's not me. You know, the only reason somebody would do that is if they were ashamed. And they knew that that immediately would break the relationship. So Peter thought that he had broken his relationship with Jesus and that Jesus would never want him back. He doesn't just abandon Jesus. He flat out denies knowing the man. Surely a resurrected Jesus wouldn't want to have anything to do with someone who denied Jesus' power, right? But then Jesus shows up. He shows up in Galilee, which is Peter's hometown. He shows up on the seashore, which is, which is Peter's place of business. He shouts out to Peter's boat, which is Peter's livelihood. And he gives Peter fish, and then he cooks lunch, or he cooks breakfast, and then he says, Peter, let's talk. <laughs> mm. What we need to understand is that redemption and God's willingness to hold on to us are a more integral part of the Christian experience than our doubts and our attempts to let go of him. We may doubt, we may wander, we may stray, but God doesn't let us go. And he doesn't dispose of us. He doesn't let us go and he doesn't cast us out. So we see that Jesus is always pursuing us with his love because we're unable to pursue him. We also see that Jesus will never disown his own. And I love that old psalm that says he doesn't throw the clay away. No matter how dry we may get in our spirit, no matter how unmoldable, unteachable we may get at times, no matter how much we may doubt, no matter how much we may think that we're out of sync with Jesus, Jesus doesn't throw us away and look for new clay. He continues to work with us until he molds us into the image he wants us to be because he doesn't give up. Because once we are his, we are always his. Always. Once Peter said to Jesus, I will follow and become a fisher of men. Jesus continued the plan that he had in his life. And so we have to finally revisit verses 15 through 19 to see what God is doing in Peter's life. And this is the third thing that we have to see is that Jesus paves the way to redemption and restoration. Our redemption, our restoration doesn't come from us mustering up just more willpower and say, I'm going to do better this week like I do on my diet every weekend. Well, there's always Monday and I can start over. No, this is not how it works in redemption and restoration. Jesus paves the way. Restoration and redemption with Jesus Christ is only available because Jesus wants it to be available. Jesus is the one who paves the way. Just like it's Jesus' posture to pursue, it's his design to redeem us. He pursues us for the purpose of redeeming us. So let's look at back at verse number 15 again. And I want to like tear these verses apart with you. It says, when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. 
Feed my lambs, he told them. So here we see that Jesus singles out Peter and he asks him a very direct question that on the surface probably seemed to be insulting to Peter or calling out Peter's shame or denying him. But Peter's going to take it because he already feels guilty. He already feels shame. He probably feels he deserves it, right? And he says, Jesus, Lord, you know I love you. And I can almost imagine his tone is very humble, very, you know, very unassuming because he knows that Jesus remembers what happened. He said, Jesus feed my sheep. Or he says, you know I love you. And he says, feed my lambs. And then Jesus asks the same question again. And, Jesus, and Peter gives the same response in verse 17. He says, he asks the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And then it says, Peter was grieved that he asked him the third time. He says, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. So Peter's getting really frustrated here, right? See, notice though what he said to Jesus the third time. It's different than what he said the second, first and second time, right? He said, Lord, which is a reference to his deity. And then he says, you know everything, which is a reference to the fact that as God, Jesus knows it all. He's admitting to Jesus that night when you told me I would deny, I shouldn't have questioned that. I shouldn't have said you didn't know what you were talking about. I got outside my head for a minute. He says, you know everything. And he says, and since you know everything, you know that I love you. Please see my love more than you see my denial. He attests to Jesus' knowledge and his recognition of Jesus as the Lord, the Son of God. Peter is making another public recognition of faith and worship to Jesus. But what we see here is the beauty of how Jesus does this. Remember all the way back when the guys were coming up with the fish and, John, and Peter standing there dripping wet because he, you know, he got there first. You know, Peter, he's like, I'm not going to let John beat me again. He's standing there dripping wet. Hey, Jesus, look at me. Look at me. I'm, I, I love you. I love you. I love you. And they come in. The Bible says that there was a charcoal fire that was there. Well, the last time that Peter was around a charcoal fire in the book of John, he was denying Jesus. The Bible says that he was warming his hands by the fire outside the courtroom. And three times he denied Jesus. This time by a charcoal fire. Jesus gives him the chance to redeem each one of those denials with a profession of love. I don't know about you, but the, it's not the fact that God forgives is, is already immense enough. But the way he forgives, the way he restores, what he's telling Peter is, it's erased. Every bit of it is paid. I forgive you for each offense. And not only does he forgive, he redeems and he restores, right? Because what does he say in his forgiveness? He says, Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. He not, only offers uh, he not only offers redemption, but he offers restoration. He says, I called you to, sh to fish for men. Now I'm going to call you to shepherd my sheep. He says, you're not done. I'm not throwing you away. I still have work for you to do. You may have denied me, but I do not deny you. And I call you to fulfill my plan in your life. Three times. Where Peter probably thought every denial was just another lash. Breaking that 
relationship with Jesus, Jesus says, not only do you keep the relationship, but you also keep your purpose. Peter didn't pave that way. Jesus did. Peter didn't start that fire. Jesus did. Peter didn't invite Jesus to Galilee. Jesus came because he knew redemption invited him. We don't pave the way to redemption. We don't pave the way to restoration. Jesus does that, and he did that. The question is, will we have the eyes to see it? And I don't know who in here needs to hear this today, but somebody needs to know that Jesus is always pursuing you. Always. He's never going to stop. Someone needs to know that he doesn't disown his own. He will not disown those who are his. He also will not cast away those who have cast him away in sin. He came to retrieve you and to reclaim you through victory over death on the cross and victory over death in the empty tomb, if you'll trust him. He paved the way for that. He paves the way to redemption and restoration. It's not a question of, will God forgive me? It's a question of, when will I approach him for that forgiveness? Because the fire, the, here's the beautiful thing. The fireside chat is always open. The fish and the loaves are always on the coals for us to come to him and find forgiveness and find restoration and find redemption. Just like Jesus is the power to overcome doubt, Jesus is the source of our redemption and our restoration. Because why? Because Jesus is the way, he's the truth, and he's the life. And no one comes to him, the Father but through him. See, maybe that's you. Maybe you've been through seasons of doubt. Maybe you've been through times of skepticism. Maybe in that season you denied ever having been a follower or tested those waters. Maybe you thought, maybe I'm not cut out for this Christian stuff. Or maybe Jesus isn't real. And now you're wondering this. Is Jesus done with me? Man, I'd love to... I'd love to get back into following Christ, but I don't even know if he'd want me anymore. He always does. And the beauty is, it's not a matter of whether he wants you. He, if you're already his child, he never let you go. It's a matter of rededicating to him. But you may be here today and you don't know Christ as your savior. Today's the day to come to him. Today's the day. I, I, I want to look at our attention. It's something we need to be prepared for at the end of this. As Jesus so Jesus forgives Peter and then immediately he says, as you feed those sheep, as I turn you into a pastor, I want you to know what you're headed for as you follow me. You see, because you thought it was hard enough to follow me when I was in the courtroom, you're going to end up in the courtroom. You thought it was hard to follow me when I was on a cross, <laughs> you're going to end up on a cross. And then he says, will you follow me? After knowing his future, after knowing what fo continuing to follow Jesus was going to get him, what does Peter do? <laughs> Peter looks at John and he says, well, what about this guy? Well, what's going to happen to him? I'm going to die. What about him over here? I mean, I know he didn't deny you, but come on, man. He has been, he has been on my case. He's faster than me. He's got better eyesight than me. You know, see, he, he says you love him more than me. And Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Peter, what I do with John is what I do with John. What I've called you to do is what I've called you to do. He says, if John lives until I come again, what's it to you? I'm asking you, will you follow me? 
And this is what many times what we'll do as we follow him. We'll look at other people and we'll say, but they seem to be getting all the breaks. They seem to be more successful. They seem to be, and then our doubts will set back in. Jesus was telling Peter at that moment, don't take your eyes off of me. You put them on other people, questions, doubts, all of it's going to raise up again. Looking around, keeping your eyes off of me is your path to denial once more. The question for us today is, will we follow with our eyes on him? Thank you for listening today. At Graceway, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about his grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section, or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.